I mean, if we really slide into something like five, six, eight degrees warming, it would simply be the end of the world as we know it. The coastlines, of course, at sea level rise, this is playing out over a fairly long period of time. But before that, my colleagues are calculating, for example, what will happen to places like the inner tropics. Will they become uninhabitable, for example? Under what scenario and in what year will huge parts of Africa become uninhabitable, in a sense, that it's so hot and it's so humid that you simply cannot survive without air conditioning? And unfortunately, it turns out in the worst-case scenario, in the business-as-usual scenario, that by the end of this century, huge parts of this planet become uninhabitable in sheer physiological terms, you see. So it's not so much, well, we will lose harvests, for example, or tourism will break down things. No. Huge parts of the planet will become uninhabitable for human beings. And this is, I think, enough to simply illustrate what is at stake here. We just are destroying the habitat in which Homo sapiens can thrive. Full stop. Welcome to Climate Thinkers, where world-leading scientists talk about what is actually happening to the climate and what consequences it has. My name is Peter Alestig and I am a climate reporter at the Swedish national daily newspaper Svenska Dagbladet. In today's episode, we'll meet one of the most influential climate scientists in the world, climatologist John Schellnhuber. He has been an advisor to both the German government and the Pope on climate issues. And as early as 1995, he actually advocated that the world should limit the warming to two degrees, the upper limit that was set in the climate agreement 20 years later in Paris. John Schellenhuber is also the one who introduced the concept of tipping points in the climate system, one of the most worrying aspects of climate change. It's about how parts of the climate system, when they are pushed far enough, can tip over into a new way of functioning, or even, as John Schellenhuber says, into destruction. It's kind of like a chair that leans too far back and suddenly falls to the floor. But in the case of the climate, the chair is, for instance, the polar ice sheets, or the Amazon, or the jet stream. When we enter the interview, John Schellnuber talks about how it came about that he coined the term tipping points in the climate system. And it all started at a lecture at Oxford University, where he compared global warming to having a fever. And this metaphor, first of all, really struck people can understand this. And when I asked myself and I exposed that to the public there, I said, well, what is going on if our body temperature is increasing, uh, 37, 38, 39, 40 degrees? Well, what happens is that some of your vital organs start to collapse, like the kidneys maybe, the lung, and finally the heart, and then you are dead. It's not that every cell is sort of damaged in the same way. So it is something where you have to identify what are the organs that keep you alive. And when I tried to compare this to the planetary machinery or to the Earth system at large, and ask what are the vital organs of the planetary system of our global environment, 
and what will happen to them if we turn up the heat, one degree, two degrees. So, so I came up with a cartoon, it was really a cartoon only in the beginning, where I just sort of drew in and uh, sort of identified uh, the things where I really think that is what makes our global environment a livable place. And it is clearly the big ecosystems like the Amazon rainforest, the Great Barrier Reef, the boreal forests. When you look at uh, the circulation patterns in the atmosphere, the monsoon systems, the jet stream, it is the thermaline circulation, what we call the Gulf Stream in Europe, but it's a much bigger system in fact. And it is the big ice sheets. And you can compare them to the bones of the body, yeah, the ice sheets, and you can think of the lungs, the jet stream and so on, and the kidneys and the heart, the ecosystems. And then I said, well, if we turn up the heat, what will be the first vital organ to collapse? Uh, it is the tropical coral reefs, as we know now. And this is, I call them tipping elements. That is, vital parts of the system, subsystems of at least continental scale, which can be pushed into a new mode of operation, or they can be pushed into destruction if you turn up the heat. Eh? So these are the tipping elements, so the really important parts of the planetary machinery. And the temperature threshold where this happened for an individual tipping element, that's the tipping point. Now, I didn't use the words at that time, so I introduced this chart. At that time, it was called the switch and choke points of the planetary machinery. But later, actually, in Sweden, in Stockholm, I changed this terminology. So we had a Euro conference on climate change, and I was interviewed by a BBC journalist. And he wanted me to describe in terms everybody can understand. Is it a critical threshold? Is it a phase transition? You know, all the slang, the jargon we theoretical physicists use. And so I thought, well, shouldn't we call them, well, you cross a tipping point. And he liked it, and he did a coverage for the BBC. And then I thought, well, he forced me in a way to use this terminology. But the more I think about it, the more I like it. So I kept using it. And when the term Tipping Points was born actually in 2003 in Sweden. We later then wrote this seminal paper, Tim Lenton and a few others and myself, in 2008 about tipping elements in the Earth's climate system. And that started in a way a new field of research. I met John Schellenhuber in the Albert Einstein Science Park in Potsdam, Germany. This is where the Potsdam Institute for Climate Research is located, an institute that was founded by John Schellenhuber in 1992. In the room next to us is the Institute's supercomputer, a black flashing gadget as big as four refrigerators. It's located in a far too large room, simply because supercomputers are much smaller now than in the 90s when the institute was founded. John Schellenhuber is actually not a climate scientist by education, but a theoretical physicist. He is an expert on non-linear dynamics and irreversible processes. But it is often the case that breakthroughs in science happen when you combine two research fields. And that is exactly what happened with John Schellenhuber when he brought his knowledge of non-linear dynamics into climate research. The result? 
the science around tipping points. Today, John Schellenhuber is 70 years old and should, as he puts it himself, actually retire. But given the situation in the climate, he has decided to keep working. However, he has resigned as head of the Potsdam Institute, which is now one of the world's most respected institutes in climate research. Since John Schellenhuber coined the phrase tipping points in the climate system, about 20 so-called tipping elements have been identified. Amongst other, the polar ice sheets or air currents such as the polar jet stream or the Amazon rainforest, all of which, according to the science, can collapse if pushed too far. So you named one example. You named the coral reefs and you also named the jet streams mm. and uh, also the Amazon. So... How many are there, would you say? How many do we know now, these tipping yeah. points in the climate system? Yeah, it's a little bit like if studying the body, when, of course, in the end, it depends on what you sort of define as a vital organ. In general, we would say in the body, it's the heart, it's the lungs, all the things we need in order to survive. On the other hand, you can take one kidney out and you can survive with one remaining kidney. And some people have lost this and that, uh, even part of the stomach and so on. So in the end, in the Earth system, in the planetary machinery, of course, there are many tipping elements. It can be a local ecosystem which can be pushed into destruction by overgrazing, for example, or things like that. But if you look at the really important parts, uh, what is organizing our atmosphere? What is organizing our oceans? what is organizing our ecosphere, what is organizing our cryosphere, that is the world of ice and snow, when you end up with, say, two dozens of tipping elements. And which ones would you say, just a few ones, which are the most important ones to think about? It depends on the timing. I would say in the short term, the most important things are clearly the circulation patterns in the atmosphere. So if you have as we see already, a distortion of the jet stream. This brings along, actually, more extreme events. So we think that the very strange weather patterns we had on the northern hemisphere in 2018, where in Scandinavia the forests were burning, that had to do with anomalous bulge of the jet stream, actually, which again is the result, we think, of the disproportional warming of the Arctic. Because the jet stream is driven by the temperature difference between the Arctic, cool air, and the mild air in the moderate, in the temperate zone, actually. And since the Arctic is warming three times as fast as the rest of the northern hemisphere, this temperature difference becomes smaller and smaller, and the jet stream becomes more sluggish and is forming these huge Rossby waves who become stationary. So it's fascinating physics behind it. But I would say this is already being felt. So on the short term, in the short run, actually, also what will happen to the monsoon systems. You probably have seen this uh, coverage of the locust plague, you know, in Somalia and so on, where all these insects are now. Now, this has to do probably with a reorganization of the monsoon systems in Africa. And if the monsoon systems in India would be changed, you know, it would have an immediate effect. So I would say these volatile things in the atmosphere, 
This is in the short term very important. And we're witnessing it now, basically. We are witnessing it now already. Yeah? We have one degree warming, 1.1 or something, global warming. And now again, if we compare it to your internal body temperature, that means 38 degrees. I mean, most people would feel uneasy already. And so we are in the stage of sort of slight fever already. Now, in the medium term, it's the vital organs, the tipping elements in the ecosphere that matter. So the Amazon rainforest, there it's not only changing precipitation and temperature. If you take away a certain percentage of the canopy, so if you deforest, say, 20% or 25%, simply by slash and burn and so on, then the system probably will collapse into a savanna. So there will be no tropical rainforest anymore. And this is more or less an irreversible thing over centuries. So the tropical coral reefs, the Great Barrier Reef, will probably perish till the end of this century. According to John Schellenhuber, the tipping elements in the climate system can be divided into three categories. First, the ones that we can see the effects of already today, such as how atmospheric air currents and ocean water currents move. The jet stream is one example, an airstream at high altitude that normally moves around the North Pole. But when Northern Europe was hit by an extreme heat wave in the summer of 2018, it was connected to a strange behavior in the jet stream that got more wobbly shape that reached far down over the continent. Another example of such systems are the monsoon systems, and a strange behavior in the Indian Ocean last spring led to East Africa receiving huge amounts of rain, which in turn exacerbated the ongoing grasshopper invasion. In the medium term, the tipping elements to look at are the large ecosystems, such as the Amazon rainforest and the tropical coral reefs. Both of these could be about to pass tipping points according to the latest science. And for the tropical coral reefs, it's actually already probably too late, according to John Schellenhuber. They are likely to die out before the turn of the century, almost no matter what we do now. But in the long term, it's the polar ice sheets. And what happens there will determine the future of the planet, according to John Schellenhuber. That is the most dangerous thing of all, because the Greenland ice sheet, for example, Greenland ice sheet is 2,000 to 3,000 meters thick, and it has survived millions of years, of course. But once it starts to melt on the surface, say by a few meters, you know, the more you melt, the further you go down into warmer air. That means it will melt even faster. Also, the surface becomes rougher, it's absorbing more sunlight, it's a self-amplifying process. And once we start, nobody can stop it. It will go on for centuries, thousands of years maybe, but it's completely irreversible. We would have to go back in geological time by 30 million years or so on to restore it, so to speak. And then we are talking about sea level rise beyond comprehension, basically. Greenland is worth seven meter global sea level rise, which would completely change all the coastlines of this planet. But the sleeping giant, clearly, is the East Antarctic ice sheet. And it holds the water equivalent of 50 to 60 meters. So if these ice sheets start to collapse, and unfortunately, 
There are now some expeditions to Antarctica, for example, to the West Antarctic ice sheet, where we try to inspect what is going on under the ice shelf, for example. It's fascinating. Yeah, I saw there was just recently a, a submarine. Precisely, going yeah, yeah. It's fantastic uh, stuff, of course. But unfortunately, the results are very worrying. It seems that warm water from underneath sort of uh, impinging on the ice shelf already. And the geometry is in a way that a self-amplifying process could be kicked off. So if the East Antarctic ice sheet would become destabilized, this would actually in the end lead to a sea level rise, which is beyond any type of management. You would have to give up zones where half of the human population is concentrated in East Asia, for example, coastlines in America, in Europe, and so on. Now, this is a process of centuries, though, if I understand This correctly. is a, a slow process. On the other hand, if some of these tipping elements in the cryosphere become activated now, Greenland, West Antarctic, Ashid, and so on, it could still mean that within this century, we get two or three meter sea level rise. And that means Venice is gone. How the ice sheets behave in the end, that will determine the fate of this planet. It's been a bit more than 12 years since John Schellnube and his colleagues published the first report in which the tipping points of the climate system were first presented. Back then they were more or less theoretical concepts, but today the situation is different. The big question now is not whether the systems can actually tip into new states, but rather what is required for that to happen and what consequences it has. During this interview, we've already heard that several elements may be about to pass or even already have passed their tipping points, such as the Greenland ice sheet or the jet stream. Two years ago, John Schellnuber and his colleagues published a new high-profile study on what this could lead to. The study was called Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. And the questions the scientists asked themselves this time were both simple and frightening. If a system tips over, how will the climate as a whole be affected? Will they be isolated events? Or can one tipping point trigger a whole chain of reactions on the planet? So if the Greenland ice sheet, for example, starts to melt down, will this be more or less ignored by the other tipping elements. And you could ask again, use the body analog. If your lung implodes, will it affect your heart? Of course it will. In the end, your heart will stop operating because you have no oxygen anymore, so no energy. Now, we of course ask if the Greenland ice sheet starts to melt, then that means extra fresh water will enter the Labrador Sea, for example. So the fresh water will dilute the salty water there. That means the water will become less heavy, but the Gulf Stream is actually formed initially by the sinking of salty and cold water, dense water, down 4,000 meters deeper. This is called deep water formation. Now, if you dilute that water through the melting Greenland ice sheet, it is not heavy enough anymore to sink down. And that would stop, this is of course a simplified explanation, ultimately it will stop the deep water formation. So that means you start with Greenland melting, this will affect the Gulf Stream system, 
the fermilion circulation. This would affect, actually, if you look at the knock-on effects, this will affect, uh, for example, the precipitation regime over Amazonia. So this could actually help to collapse the Amazon rainforest. Uh, now, this would completely change the meteorology of Latin America. For, and this would have now then effects on uh, the, the biological productivity of the South Atlantic and so on. Let's take this one more time. Meltwater from Greenland can disrupt the Gulf Stream. And this can in turn affect the precipitation over the Amazon, which could accelerate the collapse of the rainforest. And that could in turn affect the weather dynamics across Latin America. And so it goes on. John Schellenhuber and the others investigated this type of cascade effects in the climate system. And they did find several self-reinforcing effects. The question is how strong these effects are and how much extra heating of the Earth they could cause. The question was asked, is this something like a runaway greenhouse effect eh? that could be sort of set into, into motion? And... Uh, the jury is still out whether this is a realistic option. So I have to tell you, from what we know now, it's a fairly, a fairly small risk uh, that it will happen. Probably through the interaction, through these cascading effects, you will an extra, will have an extra half a degree or one degree. So instead of two degrees warming. If you emit a certain amount of greenhouse gases, you could get a 2.5 degrees warming. But we cannot be sure that the process will stop somehow. Uh, and through feedback loops, it could actually become much bigger. But you see, we cannot exclude for sure that something like a self-amplifying greenhouse process exists on Earth. And if that happens, it would actually kill our civilization. When you look at things like this as a scientist, I mean, you're also a human being. How does it make you feel? Doesn't it scare you? Yeah, it does scare me, actually. It's a mixture, of course. The scientific fascination is there. Right? I mean, when we wrote this paper called Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene, in a way, it was a great intellectual accomplishment, of course. And you are fascinated by that, and you want to get it published in a good journal. And, but at the same time, of course, you always feel the tragic which is behind that. And I have to say, I'm getting really more and more sad, actually, as a human being about our findings. Because, you know, when I founded the Potsdam Institute, I wrote the original concept in 1991. So almost 30 years ago. And I had a gut feeling, uh, I didn't work in the environment really, I came as a physicist. I had a gut feeling this is a big story really, uh, this is a big issue and we have to do something about it. So let's try to understand the potential impacts and so on and let's tell society that we are running a big risk. And I was absolutely sure at that time that in the year 2020, the year we live now, the problem would be solved actually. Either we would find out that we were much too alarmist, so we worried, but it turned out there are natural processes that counteract 
our emissions and so on, and in the end we will be fine. Or society would have recognized we have a really big problem. We are actually jeopardizing our civilization. And of course, strong policy would come into play and so on. And now I see that our worst fears, our worst case scenarios, more or less are coming true, but the political sphere has not acted at all. I mean, of course, we have a decision in Paris that two degrees uh, should be the upper limit and we should even go for 1.5 degrees. But there is an ambition without any plan. I mean, in Paris, we just, the political sort of uh, community of nation states have just created a consensus, they have just agreed on a wish list, but they have not provided any substance actually, political substance, how the wishes can be fulfilled really. I mean, the, the saddest feeling about it is that if we would have acted in time, in 1990 for example, or after 1992, the Rio conference, we could have very safely and without big distortions and without economic damages, we could have steered the planet towards safer waters and certainly we could have stayed below two degrees. But unfortunately, nobody listened to the scientists, not really, and so much time was wasted. And so the really painful feeling is not so much, well, we are going into a very, very challenging future, I mean, I'm still optimistic we can do some dramatic things and we can avoid the worst, but the really sad feeling is about unbelievably stupid waste of a golden opportunity to actually protect this planet without too much harm, without too much effort. We could have done it at very low cost if we would have started to act at the right point in time. And that was clearly after the end of the Cold War in 1990 or 1992. Because that was the point in time in history where we felt this is one planet. Now let's secure our civilization. But 30 years were wasted and that keeps me sleepless at night. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school, on the other side of the ocean. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. In September 2019, at the UN Climate Summit in New York, a 16-year-old girl from Sweden took the podium and attacked the world leaders. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? And maybe... Her actions have contributed to another type of tipping dynamics, according to John Schellenhuber. Is there still anything <laughs> that you hold on to uh, that brings you hope? No, no, there is something. Otherwise, I would not even sit here and talk to you because it would be just a waste of time. I mean, we lost three decades, clearly. And it's very sad. It's very tragical. But... Um, 
since I'm a specialist in nonlinear dynamics and the tipping elements and tipping points are part of that, we just published a paper on social tipping dynamics, actually. So we looked at, or more or less, I say, nonlinearity in the natural world, in the environment, can only be beaten with nonlinearity in the social world. So we thought about processes and actually the youth movement started by Greta Thunberg is so part of it. Uh, are contagious processes, you know, like the coronavirus thing, but in a positive way. Are processes where you get affected, you will actually infect 10 more people and the 10 people will each infect 10 people so it will spread in an exponential way. So just behavioral patterns, things like that. But we also thought about other things. And yes, it seems there's a huge potential in this nonlinear processes within our civilization, so to speak. So change may happen much faster than expected. If you look now at the extremely inert, vicious, entrenched, and boring political system, which you can always actually visit when you go to one of his conferences of the parties. So the next one will be in Glasgow, COP26. If you are there for two weeks, you lose all hope, actually, yeah? because you know you have 10,000 climate bureaucrats, and, and in the end, you have a minimal progress, if something at all. Yeah? But Within society, there can be extremely dynamical processes. And I think uh, the Fridays for Future is a symbol of that and a proof of concept, if you like. A 16-year-old girl sitting with a placard uh, on the steps of the Swedish parliament in Stockholm and starting kicking off a world movement. So this shows the power of nonlinearity. So that's the one thing. The other thing is innovation, clearly. Uh, and I'm now really obsessed with a new project, and we have also published a paper on that, is that if you would replace in the construction business steel and concrete by wood, you could actually absorb lots of CO2, and you could avoid, of course, the emissions from the conventional construction. So we can show that you can actually build a global carbon sink. And the potential is tremendous. Uh, and in the beginning, we were not even able to believe it, how big it is. And this is one of these innovations who are around the corner. You don't see them in the beginning, and all of a sudden, you realize them. So I think we have still a list of five, six, or seven golden opportunities. And if we identify them, if we brand them, and if we implement them, we could still make it, actually. But it is a drama in which we are, and we don't know yet whether it will turn out as a comedy or a tragedy. If you would say one sentence to convey your message mm. to the people to understand the seriousness when it comes to tipping points and all mm. the things we've discussed, what would it be? Yeah, I would talk about what uh, has been called by philosophers the conditio humana, that means what makes us human beings. Yeah? And everything is defined that we care for others. So we have to care for our children and our grandchildren. 
and even if the chance is very slim to avoid all these tipping points, uh, it's worth every effort. Okay? Thank you very much. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to Climate Thinkers, a podcast from Svenska Dagbladet. Producer Clara Wallin, editor Adam Svanell, project manager Gunvor Frikholm. And my name is Peter Alestig and when Climate Thinkers are back I will be in Bonn in Germany with migration expert Coco Warner to talk about one of the maybe saddest consequences of climate change. What happens when millions of people are forced to leave their homes in both rich and poor countries due to climate change? How many will actually be forced to flee? And where will they go? And how will the world react? Until then, thanks for listening.